0: I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Race takes over. Sam watches Star Trek, monkey off my backlog's second weekly podcast. If this is your first time hearing us, Pod Race is a podcast where two friends watch Star Trek: Deep Space Nine and share both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series.
1: But this week we're taking over. Sam watches Star Trek to talk about 2016 Star Trek Beyond with Tessa and Sam.
0: Yay! Yay! <laughs> Well, thank you for for having us so much. Yes. Tessa, Sam, did you want to uh, give a little insight into why you invited Elise and I to take over this episode?
2: So unlike the previous Star Trek content that we've talked about on Sam Watches Star Trek, I have actually never seen Star Trek Beyond. It's the only Star Trek movie that I haven't seen, partially because I was in the middle of writing a master's thesis when it came out back in 2016. I think. I don't remember a lot about that time. What is time? Yeah, what is, what is time, exactly? <laughs> so I was in the middle of all of that, and I was also really kind of skeptical of it after Into Darkness, which I didn't like as much the first time that I watched it, which I thoroughly recanted that opinion on the last episode of Sam Watches Star Trek. I also hadn't seen Fast and Furious and didn't know that Justin Lin is a wonderful, wonderful director. You can give Sam credit for introducing me to the Fast and Furious franchise. We talked about that in a miniseries Christmas Before Last. So I hadn't seen this one before. So I thought it was appropriate that you both come on since you had seen it before to ask us questions since we were both experiencing this for the first time.
1: I was just curious, how much did Lossie pay you to say that you liked Into Darkness? <laughs> Nothing
2: at all. I have to say, I don't think I like that film as much as Lossie does.
1: I don't think that's possible.
2: Yeah. We did have a couple of things to say in the episode about how we thought the film could have been better, but it is actually a much better movie removed from the context of all of the... Han. Oh, my God. <laughs> removed from all of the... Lying and publicity and weirdness <laughs> of the original
1: release date. It's actually a very good movie. So, are you saying that it's the Sawyer of Star Trek movies?
0: No, 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 no. That that's a discredit to Sawyer. Oh, <laughs> no, <But> you- not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Upon sorry. Second
3: look or. In Sawyer's case, upon seventy third look, he's not that bad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it took me a couple of seasons to get on board with the Sawyer love. That's fair. I feel like that's about okay. Normal. But like the
0: thing, like n- n- now, now where Tessa watches, lost. <laughs> <laughs> we love handsome men who grow on television.
3: To move away from Sawyer and to stay with J.J. Abrams here, so this is kind of like. It's very divisive whether or not you like this film. That's kind of what I've learned here. It's kind of like, did you like Felicity's haircut?
1: (laughs) I have strong feelings (laughs) about Felicity's haircut.
3: and I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but if you've seen it, it's also like the thing that happens in Alias. You either like it or you don't. I have grown to appreciate all of the above I think the best and most apt comparison is if you wanted to like The Force Awakens, you did, or you could be critical of it.
0: I think that's one of the strengths of this film, is like strongest strengths one of the strengths of this film is that like
1: wait are we podcasting about into darkness now or beyond because i i lost track. no no no. i'm talking
0: about star trek beyond okay. where it's I like know
3: half and half which one's which like we could be talking about i don't know the titles it's the <laughs> con rip off and the third one i don't know
0: but what's really interesting is like again this it feel this is the only star trek film besides the third TNG film, Insurrection, that does not have a scene that takes place on or near Earth. Hmm. That's All right. the other Star Trek films either have scenes that take place on Earth or near Earth orbit, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the two Trek movies. Aside from, I think, Search for Spock gets this a little bit, but I think Insurrection, which... Sam, you'll see eventually, and but then this one especially. Let's talk about in the context of of TOS feels the most like a feature length episode of the show, yes. and I think that has it comes with its own set of pros and comes with its own set of <laughs> cons.
1: and
0: and I think when I first saw this in 2016 when it came out in the theater, that was like a big W for me. It was the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I think watching it again this week in preparation for this, I liked it a little bit less. And I think I saw a lot of the seams a little bit more than I did the first time. So I I don't have it in the notes, but if you folks are willing to indulge me just really quickly, this film had a bit of a um, complex kind of production history before running up to it, right? So there's an original script, it was J.D. Payne, and I can't remember his writing partner, it's the two guys who are doing the Power of the, the ring show on Amazon, the new Lord of the Rings show. They had a script that they worked on with Roberto Orsi, who was the co-writer and producer on the previous two Kelvinverse films, and Roberto Orsi was working really hard on convincing Paramount to let him direct And Paramount was a little like, eh, I don't know. So there's a little bit of back and forth there. They got the the script. Paramount and J.J. had some quotes for looking at, oh, not Matt Reeves, but who did the first new Apes movie?
2: Rupert Wyatt.
0: Yes, I think they were talking to Rupert. Anyways, I think they were looking at that guy. And so Orsi, they're going to reluctantly direct. All of a sudden, they're not going to let Orsi direct. They are going to throw it out they want to release it in the summer of 2016 for the 50th anniversary they are set to film it on certain dates those dates are locked in they have like four or six months to write a script they hire Simon Pegg to do it he brings in Doug Jung or someone brings in Doug Jung I don't remember all of that they lock themselves in Simon Pegg's house for a couple months and come out with this movie and I think that that It's amazing that this movie is as good as it is with the ping pong back and forth machinations before with having filming dates set and having to write a completely new script for
3: it. Doesn't that just prove that Simon Pegg is a good writer? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, If you put a good writer into a situation like that, the test is not can the writer rise to what they're able to do. It's can they rise to the occasion. Yeah. And so everything that you've described is an excuse for a movie that's not great, but it's a reason for a movie that's good in the right hands. And that's what this movie is. It's good.
2: And also the right hands are Justin Lin's hands, which Justin Lin knows how to make a good action movie.
0: Hundred percent. I don't know if he's a better filmmaker to me overall than J.J. Abrams, like as a movie. But Sam, I see that look. Just let me hold. But I think he's a better action director because I think the action sequences are so expertly done. And like again, I haven't seen a lot of Lin's filmography. I haven't. The last Fast and the Furious movie I saw was Tokyo Drift. So that that's been my some of my monkeys to go back to there in my backlog. But I did really like his uh, episodes of True Detective Season 2, which is something that I think I am more positive on than a lot of other people.
3: You know, I said, I don't remember what episode of Monkey it was, but I revealed one of my deepest, darkest pop culture secrets, which is I don't care about action scenes. You remember the whole Marvel on Netflix discussion, the Daredevil, they fight in hallways.
1: They're still doing those damn hallway fight scenes.
3: Well, when we were talking about how great it was, I was back way back when I was definitely faking it <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so I guess my point is, as far as action directing, it, the two questions are one, do I care about what's happening when action scenes are not occurring? Right. Because a lot of people go to see action movies for, like, you know, most people go to Mission Impossible to see the insane, literally insane thing that Tom Cruise has done for this one. I'm going to see it for things that I can laugh at, like Henry Cable. I mean, Simon Pegg, but also Henry Cable. <laughs> um Henry Shouldercock Cable.
2: I'm starting but to think you also, just like really annoying protagonists.
3: Yeah, <laughs> but see that that just Christopher it's Christopher McQuarrie I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. and Tom Cruise and probably Simon Pegg, let's be honest, have done some really good work there. So I mean that's one thing. The second thing though is if you can draw me into the action, which I admittedly don't care about. You've done something good as an action director, and Justin Lin does both of those things. And I don't know that J.J. Abrams is honestly capable of either.
0: No.
2: There's definitely, like, 99% less lens flare in this movie. <laughs> I know that's, like, a tired joke, but somebody has to say it.
1: <laughs> it honestly, yeah, it may be a tired joke, but it's such yeah. a good observation because, like, I rewatched Star Trek 09 recently. I'm always rewatching these films, and like, I didn't get a headache today watching this. Like, that's like a big deal.
2: Yeah, Justin Lin definitely took out the most annoying visual feature of the first two films, but it still feels like it belongs in this trilogy, like visually. Like he does a good job mm-hmm. of making a Kelvin
1: verse. I- yeah, this it's styled similarly. I will
2: also say I was a little afraid going into this that it would be just like another Fast and Furious feeling movie. And Justin Lin did a good job of not doing that of ma- of like staying within like the Star Trek oeuvre while still making it fun in his sort of trademark way.
0: And I mean, in fairness, this was like the f- the first two movies of this trilogy were like the family coming together. And they are like younger version of these characters that we know, different universe characters. I think part, some of my frustrations with Into Darkness is it does kind of like the mummy returns thing where it's like, let's do the first movie over again with bigger budget, bigger set pieces. And like the arcs are really similar where it's like, okay, I want to see like the middle chapter. I want to see like the next version of that. Whereas this kind of comes at it from the other way. And the thing that I was thinking of this week when I was rewatching it is it kind of reminds me of a condensed version of The Daniel Craig James Bond films which had this kind of similar like okay reboot culture mid-aughts phase coming back to kind of later where it's like okay here's these movies that focus on a reboot of the characters getting us to know getting them to the place of where they are and then by the time the like third or fourth one comes around years later it's like oh they're already tired and worn out and it's like they've seen shit like, you know what I mean? So it's like it gives us the beginning and then kind of like the end. And the other thing, too, is I believe Chris Pine is about the same age in this movie as Shatner was when they were filming the original series. So it's like at this point, it's caught up. It's three and a half years or whatever it is into the five year mission. So it's like they've set this in a timeline. So it's like the original series plus one day is this movie.
3: I got that feeling. I definitely thought that it felt like it was the first two movies and then you could watch the entire series. Yeah. And then except for the fact that it's in a different universe, but these episodes could have all been the same. Right. Right. I mean, Calvin Burser, No,
1: I'm just creating like a machete order.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'm creating a machete
1: order for like watching.
3: I think about this because I can't get through an episode of talking about Star Trek without talking about Star Wars, but we talk about the things we know. Right. So, I hadn't seen this one either, but I had seen the first two having never seen an actual episode of Star Trek. I had seen wrath of Khan, So I knew enough to know, I know your game here. I know what you're doing, but one of the ways that the two franchises are very different is I think you, you genuinely could start a Star Trek series having never seen any of the others. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, your mileage may vary. You'll decide if you like it or not. I mean, there's a big difference from somebody coming in cold to somebody who's buying into the series or has bought into it already. But Star Wars has to be pretty much taken in its totality to be appreciated, a fan would say. I, I think there are a lot more entry points for Star Trek. The difference is I like these movies much better As I said in the last episode, now that I get the the references, now that I get the, you know, the jokes. And I think this movie ends up being a stronger movie for all of the things that have come before it.
2: Yeah, this one, like Matt said at the beginning, really feels like another entry in TOS. And so I I do think it would be difficult for someone who hadn't seen TOS to necessarily get everything that's going on in this movie. Not impossible, but maybe a little bit more difficult than it would have been for them to jump on in the first movie
0: yeah and i think too like it it plays with some of the the classic pairings so like it does a little bit of that again to i guess almost empire strikes back thing where like you know it breaks up the family is like you know and that's what the second guardians movie does to marvel but it's in the star trek context it's like the voyage home thing right where it kind of like splits the like core cast into teams but it plays with some of those like classic pairings Aside from McCoy and Spock, the odd couple stuff, which again feels very TOS, but we really haven't to this point seen a lot of McCoy and Spock together because the first two films were so concerned with the Kirk Spock brothers dynamic. So again, with that exception, for reasons because we hadn't seen it with Urban and Quinto yet, um, it plays with those pairings, right? You had Chekhov with Kirk, which is something that we had seen before, and you know, so got lots of that, which is something that I appreciated. And I guess then too, Sam, I was like curious because something that you had mentioned before when you had re Star Trek 09 was that all of the other actors were able to bring something fresh and something new to these historic roles with the exception of Zachary Quinto as Spock for various reasons. I, I do think it's probably difficult to bring a new spin when you have Leonard Nimoy in your movie and Leonard Nimoy is coaching you, and basically like invented a lot of like the Vulcanisms, even like as far back as Tower of Babel in season two, when Sarah and Amanda are introduced like the whole like Vulcan finger touching is like making out like sort of stuff, like that stuff that Leonard Nimoy invented. He is like the Margaret Mead of of Klingon culture or of, of Vulcan culture. <laughs> <laughs> but so I guess now that Honestly, we have maybe this, maybe
2: Klingon culture too. I mean, we don't. Yeah, know. <laughs>
0: maybe. No, I think that's more Ronald Moore and Lauren, TNG. You did a lot of that. <laughs> so my question for you was like, now that they're older, this feels like an episode of TOS. Did you notice any like stark differences in the characterization? Like, where are you at with these iterations of these characters and the portrayals of them?
3: My opinion has changed absolutely none.
0: <laughs> well
3: okay so I still think that Spock is a very flat character Damn. and I'm not going to say I blame this on Nimoy because what has he done to me why would I say that but <laughs> I mean he is still looming very large over this movie and we were watching the uh, the pitch meeting for, for this movie right before you know the series on YouTube and and the executive expresses real surprise that we don't care that Spock and Uhura have broken up. God, why would... Uh, good. <laughs> what? Like, oh! they br- So I... Nope, that's not... Like, good. That was a terrible idea. I'm so glad it's over. But that doesn't give him any emotional resonance. That, like, there's nothing there for that. He He's just doing a... A Spock impersonation, which I guess is fine. Uh, Because I'm not, I don't, I mean, my favorite character is not Spock. My second favorite character is not Spock. My third, fourth, and fifth characters' favorites are not Spock. So I don't care, but I don't think there's enough work done there because I don't, the more I think about it, and now having seen all three movies, I don't think he could. I think in this fourth movie, this alleged fourth movie, I think we might see something different from Zachary Quinto this time. I think he might. I think he just might be able to break out a little bit, but I really do enjoy what everybody else is doing. Anton Yelchin's doing great work and that's really sad. Uh, Yeah. He he has done. He was, it was hilarious. His inhabitation of that role in the first film. This film goes beyond the golly gee whiz, you know, gag, and goes on to something else that yeah. they could have built on. And so that's unfortunate. You could say the same thing of um, of John Cho, and I would say Simon Pegg, but he wrote it, so you'd expect that. <laughs> yeah,
2: Simon Pegg definitely so, gives himself so more to do in this
0: film. <laughs> so let me... <laughs>
3: Let me just say the Best Improved Award, and we're all coming from places of, of good, you know, good characterization. I'd say the award for Most Improved goes to John Cho. But again, Simon Pegg wrote him something to do. You know, but he did it.
1: I have um, a lot of feelings about this movie that relate specifically to the first time I saw it in the theater. Let me set the scene. <laughs> It's summer 2016. <laughs> he who shall not be named is running for president. Things are an effing mess. Oh, Anton Yelchin had died like a month ago. Elise sees this like special hug of a movie that's talking about helping people basically. So like in that moment to me, this movie was perfect. So I think for me the memories and thoughts about this movie maybe are higher than, like, what the, like, seeing it now, and I agree with with Matt, like, it's not as good as I remember, but I still really like it a lot. But uh, there was so much looming over that first time I saw it, that it was just, like, such a big deal. I, like, needed it at that moment in my life.
2: This does feel like a love letter to TOS. Like I, I didn't think I said that about the 2009 Star Trek, but this feels even more connected with the original
1: series. I agree. There are so many callbacks. We, well, we can get into that a little bit later. But like, there's so many fun things that, and it's while I do agree that with what Sam said that if you have watched the whole, the, watched at least some of the. Of TOS, you might appreciate it more, but I don't think they're not the kind of callbacks or jokes that, like, are not funny if you haven't seen it. Like, I, it to me, it doesn't feel like Easter eggy where you're missing something if you don't get the callback. It's just like a fun thing in the moment.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it's like a callback necessarily as much as it is that this feels plugged into like the aesthetic of the original in a way that the other two movies weren't.
1: When I say callbacks I'm talking about things I have later in my notes that I haven't brought up yet. I don't mean just like in general. Unlike how I feel about when I saw the movie Solo in the theater and everyone I went with was like wait Darth Maul is alive and I had to explain that to everyone. Like there's nothing where it feels like It's trying to be smarter than the audience. Right.
2: It doesn't feel like a Stephen Moffat Doctor Who episode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that reference,
1: but I believe you. Wow.
2: (laughs) Hold on. I'm sorry. It doesn't feel like a Stephen Moffat Dracula episode.
3: Wait. It doesn't feel like a Stephen Moffat Sherlock episode.
2: (laughs) Stephen Moffat thinks that he's smarter than everyone.
3: Is there a more least deserving? a promotion Ooh. to be all end all person than J.J. Abrams and Stephen Moffat. They are, unless Simon you Kimberg. can name somebody who deserves, <laughs> there you go. I love your There's hate your for Simon Kimberg. We're done here. Rank, <laughs> Tessa, Rank, that list. Well,
2: Simon Kimberg is the least deserving person to ever be given a movie ever in <laughs> any way.
1: But what is the list? I like. Didn't I like his last thing? What was his last thing?
2: Is it the three five five? I haven't seen it. I actually did not
1: hate that movie. I wanted to hate it, and it's not good. Don't get me wrong, but I still, I still was like, (laughs) it was. It took
2: everything in my heart. What's amazing about
0: that is they gave him a movie after X Men: Dark Phoenix. Which was they
2: kept giving movie. him X Men movies. <laughs> he's responsible for the string of worst X Men movies, and they kept giving
3: him another X Men movie. But, but he's learned. He's learned. He'll he's get it right the this next time. time.
1: Okay, so I I will say I think for me the three five five was a so bad it's good movie.
0: But no, but that's the interesting thing with these movies and like modern Star Trek is because Kurtzman and Orsi. Wrote the first two. I mean, obviously, The Into Darkness had Lindelof in it as well, but I don't know. I'm a Lindelof apologist, so I don't know how much Damon actually had to do with it. Kind of like Prometheus, which I actually like, but he just wrote down whatever Ridley Scott told him to, which is fair enough. When Ridley Scott hires you and says, This is what I want my movie to be, had a giant head, you're like, Yes, sir. Okay, Ridley, I'm going to write that down. I feel like (laughs) Prometheus, though. But like, so like Kurtzman splits off to focus on whatever else he's got going on. I think it was like the Amazing Spider-Man movies <laughs> at the time.
1: I don't like those, so films. that's why he
0: wasn't available to write this Hopefully
3: one. He's perfect.
0: <laughs> Directs the first installment in the Dark Universe, the Tom Cruise Mummy. Alex Kurtzman was his directorial debut, and now he is the grand poohbah of modern trek on cbs and the most hated
1: person by trek bros
3: (laughs) so are you so kurtzman kurtzman is who we're talking about right yeah so are you telling me that kurtzman is responsible for bringing sophia butella into my life because you said she was in the mummy movie and in this movie
2: and she's in Atomic Blonde. Atomic
3: Blonde, yeah. Both of those, yeah, yeah. So
0: Kurtzman didn't. Do- Kurtzman wasn't in Beyond. He wasn't a. T- he didn't work on this one.
3: Okay, well. But that is your link. So well, maybe us- maybe he was like, I know somebody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and the only reason that JJ didn't come back to direct this was because he got Force Awakens.
2: Yep, I do
1: remember that.
0: Which, like, 09 was his proof of concept for a Star Wars movie, anyway. Oh, totally. So-
1: it was his trial run, and I feel like, you know what? I'm kind of glad that it happened that way, because that way we didn't have JJ doing this movie.
3: Going back to something you said earlier, it, it seems like this movie, the movie we're here to talk about today... <laughs> I don't understand how this movie can simultaneously feel like at times. Like it was a saved in the editing room movie because there are parts of this movie where I'm like, what happened in the last 20? Like, did we? Where are we now? That happened to me a couple times paced. watching this.
1: Yeah, there was um one scene specifically for me where, where I was like, I had to rewind because I actually like didn't remember how I got from A to B.
3: How okay, here's the thing though. It does it's that way. But also going back to what you said about the time that it was released. When when you said that, I was like, "Oh yeah, the theme of this movie, like Simon Pegg and friend decided to interact with the idea of Starfleet as a peacekeeping exploration agency." I'm like, "Oh, in a it was. It's buried. It's, you could miss it. A better movie would have handled it better. But they wanted to deal with that idea of what happens when you have a society that is all shoot, shoot, blow things up, kill each other. And all of a sudden you go, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Would you like a job still, though? Well, Which is something that could happen literally any day now. It won't, but it could.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of my biggest It's not a problem, but like I think frustrations with this movie that like I extend to kind of like the modern era of like Star Trek on television. Whereas it's like, I see what they're doing thematically, and like the the ideas and the concepts that they're playing with are really strong. I just for whatever reason and like I mean, I have a Star Trek podcast where every week I watch, well, and I watch Deep Space Nine, and, like, Tessa has appeared on it, and, like, we work through And so I think way too much about Star Trek, but it's, like, I thematically get it. I like these themes. I like these ideas. This movie is calling out the Federation for as colonial as it actually is, and what idea of then pushing back, which is something that, like, we talk about on Pod Race, but the Federation being a colonial power and it being, you know in contrast to the different forces and things like that but like the movie just doesn't fully get there just like it's like when wily coyote is about to fall because the roadrunner's done something and he holds up a sign that says anti-colonialism anti-racism blah 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 blah, and then he falls down that's what i feel like this movie kind of does and like (laughs) by extension star trek discovery a lot or star trek picard like I feel like that's where it's like you're almost there but not quite which I would then go on my rant about that's why Star Trek's very much entrenched in this liberal institutionalist sort of
3: I, yeah I don't know where to go with that I'm like wait which one's the <laughs> fascist Wiley Coyote or the Roadrunner that's pretty much exactly where my I brain went I think it's the Roadrunner
2: I think it must I be the
3: Roadrunner road I think think Coyote is the hero
2: interesting that they contrast like the old ways with the new ways so much. And this idea of like having a paradigm, like the fact that like Starfleet is this paradigm shift in thinking between like war and peace. And like you said, I wish they would have been able to push that further into anti-colonialism, but this is what we get. It kind of reminded me of, I was, I actually talked about this a little bit on Antioch's book club with Nigel, because there's a short story that Terry Pratchett writes called Troll Bridge that has like this like ancient, like he's like 80 years old, like fantasy hero. Like it's a fantasy hero who like lived to be 80 (laughs) and like, he's talking to this troll on a bridge about like the old wars and how like the, even the fantasy landscape around them has changed. Like, there used to be forests that you could wander through for days and fight spiders, and it was all dark, and now it's all sawmills and farmland and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's kind of about this idea of, like, when you set out to save a place or to make a better world, sometimes you find afterwards that you don't really belong in that world anymore. And that's kind of where I see Crawl coming from. And I, I thought that was really interesting because, honestly, for the first half of this film, I just thought Crawl was a really generic Star Trek villain. <laughs> Because he just kind of comes out of nowhere and he's just kind of growly and Idris Elba in prosthetics and, you know, all of that stuff. But then, like, the twist that they have at the end about, I fought so hard for peace and then I realized I couldn't actually live there anymore. I just thought that was very interesting.
3: It feels like Star Wars and Star Trek people apologize for different things. Like, Star Wars has to apologize for being lowbrow. (laughs) You know, like we have Harrison Ford come at us. <laughs> you know, the difference, what's the difference between Harrison Ford and William Shatner? Harrison Ford doesn't try. He also
1: doesn't care.
3: He just <laughs> doesn't. Shatner's always trying. And so that's the, you know, Star Trek has always pitched itself as very highbrow, but I wonder, I wonder, and this isn't really a, a, a crit, I mean, it is a criticism, but it's not like, you know, I'm not on the offense here because, I would take this, for sure. But it seems like Star Trek's reputation as a franchise, the more and more I see, is constantly trying to say something, and we're really giving it an A for effort and something else for execution. Like, I mean, can you point me to the thing in Star Trek that actually does exactly what it said it was going to do? Deep Space Nine. Well, and that says something. That's really interesting.
1: This is something we've talked about, like, just on, even on Twitter, and, like, part of it, Star Trek has this utopian idea, but it's still written by neoliberal people, (laughs) so I don't, I don't think that the best ideas that, politically, the best ideas that those people have are going to be the actual utopia that we, that we want.
3: To your point, then. Tessa so that this what Alicia just said really makes sense because you know you talk about uh the shift that you know crawl is trying to negotiate and ultimately did so unsuccessfully is that it's Edison right that's his name
2: Balthazar Edison yeah yeah Balthazar,
3: Balthazar Edison. Edison Balthazar Edison so so the that paradigm shift that balthazar edison is trying to negotiate but it's unable to is rightly as you point out a paradigm shift so the whole point would be if you're trying to make a utopian show in which this governmental body has made that paradigm shift we haven't made that paradigm shift so there is literally no way to depict that because By the very definition of paradigm shift, we cannot possibly know that. And so that makes perfect sense that it's always going to be, it doesn't always have to be that, you know, neoliberal envisioning, which is always going to be problematic. It doesn't have to be, I guess, but it, but it, it is (laughs) as long as we're giving power to certain people in Hollywood, but they're trying.
2: (laughs) I did love the Kirk line, better to die saving lives than taking lives. Yeah. Like, I think that is the true thing about Star Trek is, like you said, maybe it, it can't actually depict the future that it wants to depict because it's just caught within the politics exactly. of the now and the ways that mm-hmm. we can't envision that future. But I do think it tries to envision it, which perhaps... I know it's what I'm saying sounds very close to A for effort, <laughs> but, like, the fact that it's trying... It's actually more than a, 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 it's, it's more than a oh, lot totally. of sci fi franchises I mean, even try to do. Yeah. That it makes any sense at all. Like, it, it's messy and it doesn't succeed, but it has this view. Yeah. It has this viewpoint that is almost entirely unique to it, Listen, I feel like.
3: Anybody can do a sci fi dystopia.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to make a
3: good one, that takes some effort, but anybody can do a sci fi dystopia. Doing a sci fi utopia? That's hard. Really difficult. Yeah.
2: I did like what you said, though, Matt, about how this briefly tries to do anti-colonialism because I was actually really disturbed that the space station was named the Yorktown at first because I was like, yeah, let's name a space station after a British colony that like wiped out indigenous people in Virginia. Like, let's do that.
0: But again, in classic Star Trek format, (laughs) A for effort, um, I don't know. I don't know how intentional (laughs) this is, and I don't know if this is like me being like too close to it and like finding references where there shouldn't be one but if you go back to Roddenberry's original pitches for the original series back when even before the captain was called Christopher Pike which was the first pilot and you know we see Pike coming up in a, in a new show in a couple weeks when Robert April was the captain the ship that would we would know would be called the Enterprise was called the Yorktown after the battle of Yorktown and the Revolutionary War. And I think that, once again, points towards this kind of post-Second World War, American triumphantism zeitgeist that, you know, is that kind of late 50s, early 60s kind of informing, like, when Roddenberry was doing this. And I think, like, as we talk a lot about this, like, what Star Trek is versus what it wants to be or how we reflect on it as a society, a lot of this idea of, like, Star Trek as this social utopia, like, as a post-scarcity society... That comes later. That comes in the 80s. That comes when the show's been in syndication. And in my personal opinion, Roddenberry's getting high on his own supply, right? And it being is being like, Diet L. Ron Hubbard, don't come <laughs> for me. Truckees, but that's just my opinion. Roddenberry, not a great guy. But basically being Diet L. Ron Hubbard and getting into this whole kind of sort of thing. Whereas like TOS and this being an episode of TOS doesn't really have... Some of that, that sort of stuff. So I think this, this movie is trying to rectify with what Star Trek became later versus what TOS was. And I don't think it's all like the Yorktown thing. I don't know. I think it's just a reference. I don't know how intentional it's supposed to be. But then again, you have Crawl saying this is where the frontier pushes back. But then again, Crawl's not an indigenous species in that that planet he went through a wormhole was caught in this paradigm shift a hundred years ago between societies and is a space vampire that looks like an alien because he's been sucking alien plasma or whatever and then starts to become more human as he starts vamp- being vampiric on the enterprise crew members which also has the downstream effect of making him more like dress elba which i get but then when you have a very white coated alien in white makeup being more like you know, becoming more human and villainized and then, you know, being more like the black actor that you cast to put in prosthetics. Again, not intentional. Don't know if that's, it's kind of problematic. I don't know. The racial politics of that are complex.
2: It reminded me a lot. Actually what he was doing reminded me of the Wraith in Stargate Atlantis. I don't know if any of you have ever watched that show, but the the main villains of like the first couple seasons do something very similar where they like they're it's very scary, like where they'll like grab someone and like suck all the life out of them. Yeah, I don't know. I found it very difficult to know what Kral's motivations were <laughs> in this until the very end. I'm not even sure he completely knew what his motivations are, which to be fair, if you've been trapped on a planet in the middle of a nebula for like hundreds of years, you may not know what your, de- your motivations are either. You might just be really angry at everybody.
1: Yeah, he seemed a little lost. I did feel that, and I feel this in general, not just him saying it, but the whole, like, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger concept to be mostly, that's a concept I find to be very BS. I'm not saying that it's, like, not true, you know, we go through a hard time, it changes us, et cetera, et cetera, but, like, why should we suffer? Like, I don't understand. I don't understand that. I can't relate to that.
3: If that was true, we would all be superhumans at this point.
1: <laughs> right.
3: Sometimes what doesn't kill you just makes you really sad.
1: It implies that everyone has the same level of what they can handle. Like, it's just a not good concept all around.
0: I mean, we praise resilience and we moralize resilience, not because, and, and, and that's a way in which it frees ourselves from addressing some of the systemic factors that lead to the types of abuses that force people to be resilient right like it's a way in which and i guess we're getting a little bit off topic as i feel myself going on a rant so i will gear down big rig but there's a a book there's a memoir by julia Lalonde, who's a an educator up here in canada um but it's called resistance is futile again she's also trekkie so that, that that's where I can loop it in but like it talks about <laughs> how like we really shouldn't like praise our resilience because like we are then you know saying oh this had to happen to you to make you so strong and it's like well but that shouldn't have happened and that was f- that.
2: just to tack on something to your point because i've been writing about this a lot recently for my dissertation it's a eugenics perspective right. as well it's this idea of survival yeah. of the fittest and there are some people who are fit to survive and some people who are not fit to survive and You know, like, all of this type of thinking can lead you down some really dark places. Which is why he's the villain.
1: To change the tone a little bit, earlier in the film, Kirk has a captain's log where he's talking about how life feels, and then he throws in the word episodic, which I found really Mm -hmm. funny. Um,
2: Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And,
1: yeah, and being bored with that, and... It's interesting now because every pretty much every Trek show that has come after this, save for maybe Lower Decks a little bit, although that is a little episodic or a little serialized as well. Everything that's come after this has pretty much been has been serialized. I know you guys have not watched Discovery yet, but you're watching Picard, and actually we're getting Strange New World soon, which will which is supposed to be more episodic. I know you talked about this a little bit in your Star Trek V The Final Frontier episode, but like how do you feel? How does everyone feel about episodic versus the idea of serialized Trek in general?
3: Well, I mean, I I can tell you that I never watched the next generation growing up, but I had tons of opportunities to do so, as both of you know. You know, it was not hard to find on TV when it was airing. Right. It just wasn't. I found it by accident several (laughs) times. And I, I, you know, I never engaged with it. And I I think back on the status quo of a lot of TV. And you think about, you know, the first show that I really got hooked on was ER, which was... Very episodic in its first few seasons, but the point where we're at now in season seven or eight is it's heavily serialized. And, uh, you know, Georgia Fox, who was on ER for a while, showed up on CSI, which, you know, started right at the end of the century and was a swing back to more episodic for a while. And didn't get serialized until very late in its run. And then that was all the Jerry Bruckheimer procedurals and things. So I know that I like the serialized more than the episodic. I don't care for it. I think that was the thing I liked least about the original series. I know that you can go too far down that road, though. I think a really good example of a show that's managed to balance both of them pretty well uh, is Lucifer, (laughs) which which has done like, you know, and, and to be fair, we haven't seen the last two seasons of the Netflix run. And I know it really kind of shifts. But if you look at those first three seasons on Fox, that's a really good mix of the two. So knowing that a lot of the next generation, when we go back to watch it is still very episodic. I've been told, but it has more. Yeah. Yeah. More so than across. deep space
1: nine for sure.
3: Right. I mean,
1: and deep space nine starts out really episodic and then gets a little bit more serialized, but there are still a lot of episodes where you can kind of just jump in. And
3: so I guess the thing about it is, is that you can do both. You can do both. Well, You don't have to be like Picard is trying to, like I said, with what they should have done with Star Trek five is trying to tell an overarching story over a series of episodes that is different from making a season of television that has serialized themes running through it, you know? That's just another part of the show, but it, but the problem with a lot of shows is they make the serialization the be all end all, and that's where you get into the ten hour movie thing.
0: Yeah,
2: so to say ten hour movies,
3: which is I'm what I'm not a fan is. of.
1: And I think Discovery struggled with that for a bit, but I do think the last season of Discovery had a few more standalone episodes that like advanced the plot a little bit, but like had you know had its own thing. My hope for the new show. Um, Strange New Worlds. I have no idea how many episodes it's going to be. So say it's a ten-episode season or whatever. I hope that they're mostly episodic, with like a little crumb here and right. there, and then like yeah. maybe a two-part finale based on the crumbs. Like that's kind of what the kind of show I'm hoping it is. We yeah. talked
3: about this recently. Going back to the the film, I would like to spend more time with this. I think this film would have benefited from some more things breathing. You should make your movie as long as it needs to be. And not every movie needs to be the greatest story ever told or the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Movies can be different lengths. I don't know if people know Bring back directors (laughs) coming in front of a
0: curtain and explaining their movie before the movie starts. Yeah. (laughs) All I'm saying...
3: Well, You know, I think what's lost in this whole essentialism about theater versus VOD, which is absolutely stupid in this day and age of accessibility, awareness, not even accessibility. We're just aware of it. We're not doing it, (laughs) but that's the real conversation is movies. I'm aware of a lot of things. As long as they need to be. You want to make a 67 minute movie? Cool. You want to make a movie three times as long as that? Cool. They both better be good. And part of the reason they're good is that time, the running time. So this movie is a movie that would have benefited, I think, from the Batman length, from a near three-hour runtime, because you could have unpacked some of these things. I want to spend more time with these characters. And if you've done that for me, which is really the net effect of the first two movies, now you get to spend that capital.
2: To jump in here and say, if you're looking for a really good example of a television show that does serialization without getting too bogged down on it, The Hawkeye Show, which Mm. is only six episodes, right? And it's like the perfect length. They didn't try to Mm. make it 13 episodes. They didn't try to... I really...
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy. it. Mi- it's called a
3: mini-series. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, <laughs> they used to make these things called mini-series.
1: There's a really famous one from 1995 called Pride and Prejudice. You should all watch it. There's yeah. also,
3: so I uh, that dude from Next Generation is really famous for being in a mini-series, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. I, Claudius.
0: LeVar Burton and Roots.
3: That's the one I was thinking of. The fact that there's more than one really kind of proves my point.
2: I liked how these movies, the Calvin verse movies do build on each other. Cause I did feel like there were themes that were pulled through all three movies. Like to Sam's point way back at the beginning, when we started talking about this, Kirk feels a lot <laughs> more
1: ago.
2: Kirk feels a lot more seasoned and a lot more responsible as a captain. Like he's seen some stuff. He's gone on this, you know, five-year mission that he's three years into like he's, he feels a lot more like the captain Kirk of, of TOS than he does like the person driving cars off of cliffs at the beginning of the 09 Star Trek but he's still dealing with a lot of like right. the trauma of his childhood like his not having a father identity crisis you know like his birthday is like looming large over this whole movie and we all know that people who have been through trauma have problems with their birthdays sometimes and because of the passage of time and all of that kind of thing and so I felt like they did a good job of pulling things through from those movies without necessarily like rehashing them either. Like this felt like a different movie. We were moving forward with this character, but we weren't letting go of everything and just pretending that everything was fine.
3: What you're saying is, is the birthday theme in this film is better than the last time we did this.
2: Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Although, yeah, because I that did remind me of Wrath of yeah. Khan, though, because that is like his birthday in that film too. Yeah, which I think you put it out, Matt, in the notes. Bones and Kirk drinking on his birthday—that scene feels very much like the scene from Wrath of Khan. Only he doesn't give him glasses. I was almost expecting him to.
3: He's <laughs> too young for that. I mean, well, it wasn't doesn't a,
0: yeah. doesn't he say some line about to like good health and good eyesight or something like that? I think there's like a, a reference to that.
1: I mean, I got glasses when I turned 30, so.
0: (laughs) But, like, I think in past, like, comparing contrasting that moment and kind of, like, reusing it, lifting it, adapting it, making it malleable for this new universe, like, that worked for me more than, like, doing the flip where, like, Kirk dies and gets brought back by magic con blood and you have Spock doing the con thing. Like, that's a rework. This is a reworking of, like, arguably one of my, like, favorite Star Trek movies that worked better for me than like, let's just flip this scene and do the same thing, but opposite in Into Darkness.
2: We just watched these movies and I already can't remember. Is this the first movie where Spock calls Kirk Jim?
0: I don't remember.
2: Because he definitely calls him that. And I was like, wait, is that the first time? Because it seemed significant to me, but I could be wrong.
1: I don't remember him saying it. In 09 or Into Darkness.
0: Well, I don't think
2: it would have made sense in
1: 09.
0: Old Spock probably calls but into him in 09. Right, ignored, right. Not, I mean, sylar Spock. sylar
1: <laughs> Just picture him working on clocks and watches.
2: <laughs> I love the stuff between Spock and Bones in this because obviously, like you said, it gives us some of that old, odd couple vibes. But I also felt like there was a little bit of like closure, as you know. I think of these three people as a thropple. Do you want to say the thing, Sam?
0: Stop trying to make this happen.
1: <laughs> I think Sam's outvoted this time. Whether or not
2: you see them that way, as romantic or queer platonic or whatever it is that you want to see them as, that is how I view them. But... As I've talked about before on Same Watch as Star Trek, I also feel like it's very obvious that Kirk is like the primary in both of their relationships. Like they both have like relationships with Kirk that preclude their relationships with each other. But then it feels like over the course of the series, like they establish their own relationship that sort of happens. Again, romantic yeah. or not, you can interpret however you want. I loved the conversation in this film when they think they're gonna die because they're surrounded before they get beamed out, where Spock tells Bones that he respects him and that he always thought that their dialogue was something. We'll never know what it was because Bones interrupts him and is like, you don't have to say it. Like, and so like, I, I <laughs> felt like that was fun character growth. I felt like that was like a fun way of acknowledging the relationship between the two of them and how they actually do deeply care about each other, even though neither one of them will ever admit it. I just, I liked that.
1: I agree. I felt like because of those scenes that this had the most thruple potential because you'd like to think that those two other people like have a you know like each other. Yeah, <laughs> if you know, you want that in kitchen table
2: polyamory for sure.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Starbase Yorktown um, and how it felt for me like uh, to be a really really fancy Deep Space dine <laughs> type of place. Um, it does visually like look an upgraded a bit like it.
2: You're absolutely right. Yeah,
1: although a little bit more dizzying. Um I had a really hard time with like the percept the perception of everything. It almost felt like a some like a scene from Doctor Strange where like things
0: were It's the mirror dimension.
2: I wonder if they have to tell people not to look up while they're walking. Like it felt like one of those optical right. illusions where it's like you have to like look at where you're going and
1: not look up. Where like things are folding on each other and But I do wonder how many promenades you thought were were on this.
3: I think it was necessary to design it that way for the pod racing scene.
2: Sam, at one point during this movie, while they were flying ships through Yorktown, yelled, now this is pod racing. (laughs) I love that.
3: What I didn't say to Tessa, because I didn't need anything thrown at me in that particular moment, was, well, oh, that's right. Tomorrow we will be pod racing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> I love that.
2: <laughs> okay, that was pretty good. I was also corrected while we were watching this. I referred to the apparatus that Sulu is using to pilot the USS Franklin as a joystick. And I was corrected because it's called something else. It's a
3: yoke. Okay,
2: so
1: oh, I'm sorry that
2: I used the wrong terminology <laughs> to talk about a fictional pilot station. Mean, to be fair, it, it's,
3: not, it's not a yoke because it's not a mechanical device. It's clearly computerized, but, you it's know. Still it's still hands-on stick, stick and, thing, and throttle, Tessa. yeah.
1: That sounds dirty. I'm sorry. It
3: really makes you wonder how many mechanical parts are in a starship. Like, at this point, are we all... That's the, the complaint about modern cars, automobiles if you will
0: <laughs> is that
3: you can't go in and fix it without yeah. like a computer to talk to the computer inside yeah
1: the tire light on my car is on like permanently and um it's right. like 150 dollars to check each tire to like see which one's broken and i'm like i'll just fill it with air every so often that's fine i'm not paying 600 dollars or however much money that is I don't know how to do And that's that.
3: actually a plot point in this movie. Right? Like I feel like there's a real generational divide in this movie where the Franklin is the name of the yeah. ship, right? Yeah. Where they get in and they're like, you know, they're gonna they're gonna figure out this thing doesn't fly anymore. Well, can you fix it? Yeah. I feel like anybody below a certain age is gonna be like, what are they gonna do? I don't know. And anybody above a certain age who knows how to drive a manual transmission is going to be like, they're popping the clutch. They're going to pop the clutch, drive it off a cliff and pop the clutch. Come on.
1: I mean, I don't know how to drive a manual transmission, but I'm like in Sam form. I am like, Scotty's there. It'll be fine.
2: I will also say though, like not that J- JJ was long gone from this, but there is a similar plot point in an episode of Lost where they're trying to get the VW van going. Oh and push yeah, down the hill.
3: Right. Hurley pops the clutch. Yeah,
2: Hurley pops the That's clutch. That's true. I'm not sure anyone would really want to drive off of a cliff with a
1: car You're that really was breaking. But... Do you think <laughs> that Roger Workman like... is in the USS Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> it could
0: be. I was going to say I'm thinking of the version of this movie where they don't do a sabotage con. Callback and instead the climactic song that like gets rid of all the drones is three the three dog night song that's in the last episode. Is that shambhala or whatever?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm now thinking about it being we all everybody.
3: I thought it was nice they went back to sabotage, by the way. I think that was nice. But I was like, cause it's the right mood, right? Like you you that's a very specific mood, but I'm like, are we gonna do right to party? Are we going to do intergalactic? Like, what are we going to, like, you know, Beastie Boys is about to happen. They're not going to go back to the NWA well again, which would have been fine. But you knew they were going to call back to the first movie. I just didn't think it was going to be the same song, but it's fine because it was cool.
2: I am torn because I thought it would have been cool if they had done Fight the Power again. That, that would have been really cool. But- when I
1: first watched it the first time, I thought they were going to do Fight the Power. Like that, I thought it was going to be the same song from earlier.
3: Turns out of Flav's voice is the,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, the it's the perfect it's the weapon that the <laughs> that Starfleet needs <laughs> and deserves.
2: Did anyone else think that his swarm of ships was like the flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz? Because that was the vibes I was getting, especially when they're like flying up from the planet. I was like, Doo, do, 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 do.
1: so for me, it was like the Sentinels in the Matrix Revolutions, um, mm-hmm. where they were like coming into Zion, especially the first time we saw them.
0: The audacity to have like a thirty-minute Zion defense sequence with like none of your main characters like go off but there's this one shot where it's like a doom painting from like the medieval ages, which is, is very good. Sorry, Sam, you had your hand up.
3: No, I was agreeing with you visually.
2: <laughs> Podcasting is a visual is medium. What we do
3: it. Wow. Was
2: anyone else kind of creeped out by the joke of you gave your girlfriend a tracking device?
1: <laughs> so I wasn't creeped out by the joke. I was creeped out by the fact that it, that was what happened. Like, I thought the joke was funny.
2: I mean, I don't think Spock meant it that way because he kind of has this look on his face like, oh, I didn't realize until just now that it could be used that way. But at the same time, he had the idea awfully quickly.
0: (laughs) Yes. I'm
1: just saying. So what I'm saying is like, (laughs) I was with Bones completely on the joke and calling it out. But yeah, it was like, it was creepy that that was a thing that happened.
3: I mean, if if Kirk is the womanizer, and Bones is the the like made for monogamy person. I mean, you know that mean Spock has to be the obsessive creepy stalker one, right? I mean, like if we're doing I mean if you just logic it through, it really works out. Like he doesn't fall often, but what he does run. Go, go, go. He don't want that. <laughs> nobody wants it.
1: So, we haven't talked about our new character, Jayla, yet.
3: She's great. I love her. She's great. Yeah. I
1: mean, I
2: mentioned earlier Sophia Butella is an atomic blonde, and I think she's amazing in that. Less so in The Mummy. Not her fault, just that is a movie. But it was really cool actually seeing her do like action, which I think she's very good at here. I, Did I, anyone else ship her and Scotty? Like most yes. yes. of us were watching this movie going, There's something there, right? Like we're not Yeah.
1: She knows what engineering is. Like I um I found it really interesting when I was looking up information about her. Um Simon Pegg had said that her character is somewhat inspired by Jennifer Lawrence's character in Winter's Bone, which is a film I have not seen, but basically that character had to like look after her themselves and I guess some siblings and didn't have a lot of resources. So I, I get the connection there, but they, so in discussing the character before they wrote, before they named her, they kept calling her, uh, J J law in, winter's bone and then they ended up just shortening that to calling her jayla and then eventually they were like okay well i guess we're just going to call this character jayla instead of like coming up <laughs> with a different name and i thought that was very funny
2: i want scotty to build her another house
3: yeah well he owes her that yeah at least. and he can come visit it if got she got her in the starfleet though right
2: Yeah, I'm worried though that they're just gonna write her off the same way they wrote Alice Eve off because it felt at the end of Into Darkness like she was going to like continue on with the crew and then she's like nowhere to be found in this movie. I mean,
3: they're operating in a very grand tradition of every single Bond film ever except the new ones.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I guess
0: that's (laughs) true. Or
3: the time she dies.
0: So that was something that Peg was asked about at the time, right? Because again, of, of where... Alice's Eve, Carol's Marcus was like very much joining the the crew, and at the time when Into Darkness came out, there's that very uh, gratuitous underwear shot in the you know the shuttlecraft, which is off off talked about at the time because it really didn't need to be there. And Peg's quote at the time was quote We thought rather than having Carol Marcus be not used to a reasonable capacity, we would just not include her, have her be alive in canon, and be ready to come back at any time. So, a bit of a like, you know, dodgy sort of answer there. But again, like, if she's just going to be there to be there, obviously, you're probably dealing with budget and different things like that, too. But if she's like a background actor, I don't know. She could come back for four if they make a fourth one, I guess.
2: I also really like the character design of Jayla, which, yeah, or the, me too, the pro, like the makeup and the prosthetics. I don't know. Did you ever tell us what? kind of alien she is like where she comes from or anything she doesn't even
1: seem to know i'm sure there's something on the internet but i didn't look that up um she just looks really cool like i i love her yeah
2: i agree
3: i tessa i think uh she is uh, her credits include hotel artemis which i've wanted to see but never have and the Fahrenheit 451 that got made for HBO that has Michael B. Jordan in the titular role. So I have a feeling we'll be talking about at least one of those oh, on the yeah. podcast later this year. Wink.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I got a little emotional while they're trying to like leave the, that planet, and like the baddies are like, they're going to leave you here. And like Kirk was never going to leave her there, but like she doesn't know that. And I found myself kind of and it's probably reverting back to when i first saw this and how i've explained how i felt at the time and unconsciously like brought me back to that so like i got really emotional and i actually teared up a little bit when like kirk went to grab her at the at one scene um when they he's transporting onto the franklin and then she's like take my home and make it fly and i just got very whew, i fl- i got fluttery
2: I mean, if we know anything about Kirk, it's that he gets really attached to new women who come in for, you know, for for one episode of of his his five-year mission. (laughs) No, I thought that that was really good. Although the transporter sequence, the the motorcycle sequence where he apparently rides a motorcycle that has not been used for over 100 years (laughs) and it works perfectly fine. <laughs> that sequence and the sequence where he jumps and grabs her as he's being transported those felt the most like Justin Lin Fast and Furious yeah. movies to me those felt most it like worked him.
1: for me though oh no
2: like i it was works, like it's just i was like this is something like it felt like okay so it felt like dom toretto launching himself over the uh divide between the highways i think it's in 5 no no, no it's in 6 and he grabs letty like to save letty yeah and he doesn't know it's gonna work but he leaps anyway because he loves her that's how it felt to me like that particular scene it makes me cry every time
1: (laughs) i really loved that and but it also to me felt like a callback to to star trek nine because he shows up at you know on his motorcycle um gives it to some guy who thinks it's cool and then joins starfleet so it, it does also feel like a Kirk in this Kelvin verse type of characteristic to be on a motorcycle. Like it just, it felt right. And as soon as he saw that motorcycle, he got very excited.
3: (laughs) I, this, uh, it actually happened earlier in the movie with Scotty, but we could be talking about it here too. One of my big pop culture pet peeves is that most people, I'm not talking about Ben Diesel, but even Ben Diesel and what you just talked about, most people don't have this thing that we would call grip strength. Mm. <laughs> like, Scotty died when he fell off that cliff. <laughs> but he, like, bounces up and then grabs it on the way yeah. down. Like, nope, that's not how that would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, but...
1: I think there was a couple times in this film where I was watching and I was like, there's no way they're not dead. Like, in if this was really happening, like, they would all be dead.
2: I love how this movie... Blows the sh- out of the Enterprise like several times. Yes. I love like, it. The destruction of the Enterprise <laughs> takes like it's... half of the movie, and then when you think it's over, they blow up the saucer and flip it over again.
3: It's, it's still good. It's still good. We just don't have a shield. It's still good. It's still good. <laughs> the little flappy things are missing. I don't know what they're called. It's
1: <laughs> the nacelles. Is that Whatever. what you're talking about? <laughs> I love that they separated the saucer in this film, but it also feels kind of pointless because wasn't that part, like, already s- screwed up anyway? Like, I love a saucer separation in Star Trek. It's so much fun for me, um, and we usually only saw it on TNG. The Those, like, that swarm, like, already went through everything. So, like, it- to me, it felt separated already. So, like, to separate again what seemed. seem gratuitous separation
2: i do enjoy star trek episodes or movies either one where the enterprise is invaded by an alien force and they have to like fight or hide or run for the enterprise and so i really enjoyed that first sequence of them like trying to like write the ship even though like at some point they know it's like all over and they just have to figure out how to like save everybody This is another spoiler, which I know that you don't know about, Elise, so I'm not going to... I'm going to try to say this as vaguely as possible. What is it a
1: spoiler for?
2: There are some vibes in that first sequence that reminded me a lot of Mass Effect 2, and that's all I'm going to say. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't... (laughs) I don't want to be spoiled on Mass Effect 2. You know what I'm talking about.
1: Um, Matt looks like he might need you to tell him later. No, I think... (laughs) No, I... I, I'll I'll I'm just teasing. I'm pretty sure I know what you mean. So that scene that you're talking about where they're, like, being chased in the ship felt very a new hope to me, especially because the walls are so white. And, like, they're, you know, shooting around. And I totally expected someone to be like, I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. (laughs) Like, in the (laughs) middle of that. Which is not a complaint. I I thought it was fun. But this movie, you're right, Justin Lin does action very well.
2: And it's fun action. Like, yeah, there are some things that are probably a little messy about this movie, but it is like overall, it's a fun movie to watch. Like, yeah. it's a very enjoyable movie to just kind of sink into the Star Trekness. Yeah,
1: of I thought some of the um, CGI looked cartoonish. Um, like those characters at the beginning that were cheap. Like those, <laughs> those like medicine guys at the beginning that didn't want that gift that ended up being like super tiny. Um, which was actually like a really funny, fun though. gag i thought yeah i don't know i loved it but there were like there were some cartoony cgi but it, it didn't bother me i just was like okay yeah.
2: yeah i see you ripped your shirt again or is this he say i ripped your shirt again? my shirt ripped again is what he says i always get it confused with the scene in galaxy quest where alan rickman's character says i see you ripped your shirt again
1: <laughs> i mean they're the same <laughs> reference though really right they're both making fun of, like, the TOS and the shirt ripping. There was a lot of fun, like, TOS. Call- that. So those those are things I was calling callbacks earlier. Like, that, and then um, Matt said, you know, Bones and Kirk drinking on Kirk's birthday. Um, Chekhov's comments about scotch being invented by an old woman in Russia was something he had said <laughs> in The Trouble with Tribbles. He's so a vodka
2: guy, yeah. I do remember that.
1: And then Sulu saying, are you kidding me, sir, when he says, can you fly the Franklin? It mirrors Sulu saying the same thing at the beginning of Undiscovered Country where that um, something happens to Praxis, the Klingon moon and some of that. I don't remember. It was like the woman that was played the act. That was the same woman that played Rand or if that was actually it Rand. She I plays Rand confused.
0: in the movie, yeah. Grace Lee. Whitney, yeah,
1: she, yeah. She was. I don't know. Was it her or the other guy that was like, should we report this? I think it might have been the guy because like the woman would have just known sorry, Matt, Um, Um. to be like, and and then he says, are you kidding me? Like, of course, we're going to report this. So that there was a lot of fun, like little callbacks that I really liked.
2: I also feel like the score was very reminiscent of some of the scores from the original series like the, yeah like, i the i heard that too and like the mm-hmm. horns like it did there were so, especially during some of the action sequences i was like i was half expecting the camera to just like turn to william shatner and him to be throwing a really clumsy karate chop like that's kind of how some of those sec- sequences felt with the music but it was this more slick more advanced action
1: aesthetic i thought michael gianchino did like really good or however you pronounce his name. I never pronounce it right. Giacchino. Future
3: multiple Oscar winner, uh, I think is how you pronounce <laughs> it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it both ways.
1: Only other things that we haven't discussed were that a lot of the side characters, and I say side characters, Lucy, like got a little bit more to do.
2: Sulu is officially gay in Star Trek canon, or at least in the Calvin verse canon. So I mean I mean I felt like that was a nod to Decay.
1: Yeah, it, yes, it was. I think that Takei didn't didn't like that they did
0: that. George went back and forth on it. He, George went on a journey.
1: I think he felt that it implied that Sulu was previously closeted, which I don't think is what Simon Pegg intended when it was written in the script. He thought that in the Kelvin verse, it just hadn't been discussed, like it hadn't come up. I thought it was cute.
2: I liked that he had his daughter's picture in the on his like navigational console. I thought that was really cool. Yeah,
1: uh,
3: that's really funny. So, so are we arguing that he was Schrodinger's queer? I mean, until perhaps. this movie, is that what?
2: Look, George Takei. Know. If anyone I... thinks that Sulu in the original series was straight, like George Takei is trying to play someone who is straight and just like failing miserably
1: (laughs) yeah the The way he comes on to ahura sometimes is very cringy and very fake seeming to me so i would agree with you
0: on that well and it's like it but it's it's that stupid like disney exclusively like queer moment and beauty and the the new beauty and the beast thing where it's like oh we feel that he's gay because his daughter is there and his daughter's with another man and they have the for half a second that could easily be cut out so we can show this in China or Russia or wherever. Yeah. Where like he has yeah. has his hand around him and there's not even like, you know what I mean? So it's just like yes and no. It's like do better. Don't like pet yourself on the back and take like a media lap if you're not gonna if it's something so like easily cut out.
1: So is it better or worse than the Rise of Skywalker kiss?
3: Well, you remember, I mean, in the 90s, it was the whole thing about representation, right? Like, we need to see examples of these types of people. And I'm not just saying, you know, gay or queer people. I mean, there were lots of examples of this. But we moved very, very quickly in some ways that I'm even kind of amazed at. So far beyond representation so quickly that you don't get a cookie for this like the bar i think got raised way past that if you're not i i mean i think that's the point right if you're not willing to engage with it meaningfully don't bother
2: well i think i'm willing to give them a pass like you said i don't think they get credit for it like they don't get to take a a media lap for it but i do tend to give them more of a pass for this one mainly because sulu isn't a character that we focus on his personal relationships quite so much so like mm-hmm. it makes right. sense to me that whatever his personal relationships are would be in the background of like a shot. Yeah. Whether he was straight or gay well, or whatever.
3: The whole point about but the spouse and saying. the kid is yeah. to establish stakes. Right. Personal stakes. Which right. if the movie had been a little bit longer, they could have explored. The fact of the matter is it doesn't matter if his spouse, what gender his spouse right. or what Species. I mean, none of that matters. The fact is, it makes the stakes exist. Gotcha. And so, like, the acknowledgement that the spouse does not have to be, you know, a human woman, which you could have handled in any number of different ways, that's cool. But right. that's not the point, yeah, and that's why like yeah. it's fine, ultimately. It right. just doesn't feel, do that.
2: I feel better about this than I do about like the kiss and at the end of Rise of Skywalker because that feels like it was just like jammed in there. and like you said, oh, yeah, I mean I was joking when I asked which one was worse. whatever
1: <laughs> we do get a little bit more of like, I don't want to spoil it for Sam, but there is a little bit of a Sulu's we get a little bit of a Sulu in um generations, even though he's not in that film and i do think that star trek discovery does a lot better with um with queer, queer characters in star trek cuz there's like queer relationships where the they're already established and it's not like it doesn't feel like a starting place it feels like we're just we're watching these two characters and they just are queer it's not like The fact that they're queer isn't, like, a plot or, like, a storyline. It's just, they're just two characters that are queer, and I I appreciate that. I was going to say, it gets better. But that feels really cringy, even though I meant it that way.
2: I do have to ask, uh, Sam will not get this until much later in Sam Watches Star Trek, but I put this in the notes because I I can't be the only person who felt this way, and I said it out loud, and Sam was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Did anyone else feel like Scotty saying... I beamed you one at a time so you wouldn't get spliced is a Tuvix reference, like... A
1: hundred percent. Right? My friend AJ and I were watching this last night, and and we were talking about Tuvix while we were watching this. And I, I, I'm sure that that was on purpose. And there's also another... I mean, um, another character whose name was, like, Admiral Paris, and that felt like a nod to Tom Paris in Voyager. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So, speaking of Scotty, like, as we kind of, like, are kind of in bits and bobs before we kind of move to to our kind of closing segments here, I have a a question for for everyone. Um, Was Scotty's grandmother that he quotes a fascist? Because he talks about the strength in, like, a bundle of sticks. And a bundle of sticks or rods that have an axe in them, is like a fascis, or a facies. I don't know how you say it, pronouncing. which was an illustration that was often used by Mussolini, and it's the one in which the word fascism is derived from. So, Star Trek accidentally referenced fascism, so.
2: I was kind of hoping it was like a Scottish reference, like maybe it's a completely different reference. Hopefully! <laughs> now that you bring that up, that is
1: a little odd what was the line in the movie i don't even remember this
0: Well, he's talking about how like there's like it's like one of like because the team of family and being better together stronger together and like you know you can't it's harder to break like a bundle of sticks first like an individual stick oh. but definitely um that illustration has been used for nefarious purposes so it was just kind of
1: oh i had not heard that
3: yeah,
0: before funny ha ha
3: Oh, I was just going to say, I knew that was somewhere. I I, I think that's uh, also Aesop, isn't it? Oh, is it? Maybe. Okay. I think so, because I know that reference from like a long, long time ago, and I assure you I'm not a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have Fair to take right. my word for it.
1: I believe you, Sam.
3: That's a really interesting... Um, I, I, I don't think that's, you know. No, I, I don't think that was intentional. No, it. I know yeah. you don't. I just, I think it's really funny. But like when I, I'm had you not heard that one before, Tessa?
2: I have read so many Aesop's fables. That's and true. the one that usually gets quoted is my least favorite, <laughs> The Scorpion and the Frog. Oh my God, stop putting that in your pop culture. Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh, I
0: was just going to say, I,
2: I, I, don't, I don't remember that particular one. I don't have
0: much, a point. I, I just, yes. that's <laughs> all <I guess.
1: laughs> Matt, where were you where There's
0: were something
3: you, in there about William Wallace, but I'm not going to
0: do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, but that that all brings up, there's this whole, like, for as mixed from, like, my more leftist perspective as Star Trek is sometimes, like we were talking about before, there's this whole, like, stream of, like, really far right-wing Star Trek fans that, like, I completely, like, don't understand, like, at all. Like, are we watching the same show? Like, I definitely have reservations yeah. about some of its messaging, but... <laughs> like,
2: fuck. But, but it's definitely not coming from a conservative place. No, right? Exactly. exactly. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: So tor- towards the end of the film, um, it's Kirk's birthday, and he gives a toast to absent friends, which is a toast that has been done in other Star Trek iterations. And there's a scene where he actually... They actually focus on, on Anton. When that is said, and I don't know if that was just—it was just a really I like how they edited that part because he had just passed.
3: I was gonna say it's just sad that Justin Linz had to do that twice now.
1: Yeah,
2: because he had to yeah. do it with Paul Walker in the in the Fast and Furious movies as well. I have always hoped. Obviously, I've loved Anton Yelchin. Uh. 09 Star Trek was my introduction to him, but he has been brilliant in every single movie I've ever seen him in. I really hope they don't recast Chekhov, which sounds really strange to say, except for I saw somebody, I, I can't credit this person with it because it's been so long, but someone on Twitter mentioned that what they really should do is cast a different character. And they specifically said someone like, a character who is Muslim who wears a hijab on the Enterprise, because that was really what Chekhov as a character was supposed to be in the original 60s trek was, you know, hey, look, like this person who is Russian, you know, in this future utopia, like we won't have these conflicts anymore. And like we'll be on a bridge together and we'll be working together for, you know, a better future. And somebody recommended that. If you really wanted to be in the spirit of Chekhov, you wouldn't recast this character. You would introduce a character who functions in a similar way. I've always thought that would be a better a way of honoring Anton Yelchin's version of the character while also trying to do something perhaps a little bit different with that role. I don't know what you all think about that, but I, I'm actually really opposed to the idea of trying to recast this character.
1: I would also prefer them to just have a different character. Um, I like that idea that you mentioned that you had read online um that sounds really similar to what gene was doing like this person's not that scary or you know not scary at all
2: he's actually kind of silly yeah
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's he's a human (laughs) or you know not to be like they all have to be humans but at this point actually and this is something we talk about on on pod race like and i know you've talked about this before about like You know, the OG bridge crew is all human. But at the same time, I wouldn't want, like, a character that was brought in to show that people can work together to be, like, othered. So having it be someone of a different species might retract from all of that. So I I think that would be nice.
2: R.I.P. Anton Yelchin. We loved you in this series. And
1: R.I.P. Leonard Nimoy. Although I should say about for Leonard Nimoy not r.a.p but may his memory be a blessing
2: on that note would you like to move on to the
1: next (laughs) i mean i think that matt has thirst feelings about leonard nimoy so we can we can bridge that gap
0: so something that we like to close out pod race with every week is we have two regularly scheduled segments one is most Star Trek moment, which we won't be doing today, but something that least and I wanted to, to bring over for this episode of Sam Watch Star Trek was our Altair Water thirst-quenching segment. Altair Water first being mentioned by Dr. McCoy in Star Trek 3. This is in w- the segment in which we've been talking for, check's notes, a little under two hours, we're a little parched, we're a little thirsty, and we need a tall <laughs> drink of water. So, Elise, as an experienced thirster for Star Trek, we'll start with (laughs) you. Who are you thirsting for this week on Star Trek Beyond?
1: I am thirsting for Jayla, or Jayla, however you want to pronounce her name. Confirmed bisexual. My girl cannot sit normally, and she's (laughs) very hot. I just, just want to hang out with her.
0: What an icon for, like, taking up the space that you deserve When Kirk just assumes that he's going to sit in the captain's chair and Jayla's just like, (laughs) spread it out like, what? No, go find another chair. And Scottie's like, he likes that seat and she's like, Iconic. (laughs) Icon. I I mean, it's her house. (laughs) Tessa, what about you?
2: I can't disagree with that. However, a close second to me, even though she's not in this movie as much as I wish she was, is Shoray Agdashloo, who I will always thirst for no matter what she's in, especially when she's in uniform what can I say? I actually mentioned her name when I saw her. I was like, I didn't know she was in this. And Sam's like, who is that? And then
1: she heard her voice and she was like, ah, I know who that is. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Speaking of Mass Effect (laughs) 2.
1: My parents are watching um, NCIS and she was in an episode that they were watching the other day and I like couldn't see it, but I heard her voice and I was like, oh. I think that is Admiral Paris. Yeah, Commodore Paris. I didn't realize
2: that that was her name. She's just always going to be to Lute, maybe.
0: yeah no i love her she's hot sam did you have a, a candidate for the Altair water thirst quencher
3: oh i just have to i just have to agree with elise and bisexual lightning over here <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny when you said a close second even though she's not and i was like oh, are you gonna say alice eve
2: I mean obviously if this yeah. was into darkness it would be Alice. Right. So but, so
3: a close <laughs> so, so a not close second for me would be not pictured.
0: <laughs> Sir not appearing in this film. What's <laughs> a <laughs> You know,
3: and I think it I think it's okay to bring her up because I was waiting. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And instead we got Greg Grunberg, even though JJ didn't direct it.
1: Yes. We talked Always about that too, we're like Grunberg. perennial JJ
2: Cameo.
0: Rundberg.
3: he's basically the jj equivalent of the friend of the pod but he's not e- like, JJ isn't
2: even directing this film so why is he here it's, he's like right
3: my straight. cameo in the first one was just a voiceover
0: so i gotta i gotta fresh off my take as snap wexley i need to command the yeah. snow globe oh, space station
2: it is a uh heroes reunion though a
1: little bit because of him and yeah uh,
2: that's true Zachary Quinto, which i didn't think about until just this second
1: and interesting to me that we have a film that Idris Elba is in and he has not been listed as anyone's Altair water thirst quencher. And I think that's because we unfortunately have him in prosthetics for the majority of the film. Yeah.
2: I think the whole film, because even when he like looks like himself at the end, he's still got like Yeah, The, eyes the only time still... he's him
1: is in that one video that yeah, Uhora finds.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean Not to end too too much on a downer, but, like, Hollywood needs to cast Idris Elba in more things that aren't voiceover roles or, like, heavily, like, prosthetic-heavy roles. And, like, again, we get Zoe Saldana in this without, like, you know, her Navi or or Gamora makeup for a change. And then, like, Lupita Nyong'o is another black actor that, like, we see a lot in voiceover roles or playing an alien or different things like this. It's just, just, just cast these people as themselves.
3: I just, Zoe Sedona, is is there any actor who is in as many high-profiled, allegedly real movies than her? <laughs> because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Des- Star Trek 4 has a release date. Avatar 2 have has a release date. Uh-huh. Sure.
1: I still don't <laughs> believe Avatar 2 is a real thing.
3: Day, I believe that Avatar 2 is coming out is the day we have to rewatch it. <laughs> so.
0: The thing about Star Trek 4 is when they and one of that Paramount investors call a couple months ago, where they because like there have been lots of stops and starts since this movie came out of whether there's going to be another reboot, Noah Hawley was going to do one with a new cast, blah 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 blah. SJ Clarkson before was going to do a Star Trek 4, but they couldn't like come to contract terms with chris hemsworth who was supposed to re return and, and chris pine etc cetera, etc cetera. but at this investor calls a couple months ago which has put kelvin verse four back on the map apparently the whole cast was taken surprised by that announcement and they weren't like under contract and they're like we're gonna bring everybody back and it's gonna be great and it's gonna come out on this day and the cast was like cool i didn't know that so i I feel like that movie's even less real than Avatar Two, which I have seen Quentin behind Tarantino the scenes stuff. Yeah.
1: Keeps threatening to make one.
2: Too. I think that's dead. Yeah, I well,
0: think I that one's dead.
1: Yeah, that was another one, and then there was another film where they were gonna where someone that is involved with Discovery was gonna write it, and it was not going to be the same. It wasn't gonna be an Enterprise. There was gonna be a another movie. So, like, it's hard to keep track of all these fake movies.
2: Matt, you haven't told us who your thirst quencher is.
0: I mean, it's probably just Chris Pine being Chris Pine because he is like my favorite Chris and like
2: all blue eyes. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's he is the best Chris,
2: middle aged blue eyes. Oh,
0: and just like he obviously <laughs> doesn't have it in this movie, but like when he grows that kind of grizzled salt and pepper beard, you see him with sometimes, and it's just like.
2: Yeah. I didn't mention this earlier, but the outfit changes that he and Chekhov go through when they get into the they they get into an escape pod, and by the time they get back down to the planet, they are wearing a
1: completely different uniform.
0: <laughs> like coveralls, I guess. Yeah, I think they pulled it from the escape pod. It's like a survival gear kit, I think is the idea.
1: Oh, maybe. I really like the uniforms in this um film, but I wanted to say just to like an add-on thirst quencher. I really loved at the party at the end. Ahura's dress—it was so cute and feminine, and it was—I enjoy seeing everyone in their casual wear. But her dress was just so pretty.
3: Typical Western culture, typical Hollywood film. The woman is wearing the the really formal dress, and. <laughs> Kirk and Bones are like wearing T-shirts with the collars torn. I mean, like, good job, guys. <laughs> good job. Way to make an effort.
1: I would wear that dress to things that people wear jeans to. So, but I that's, like to wear
0: that's dresses. But that's, cool. that's my that's my problem with like. <laughs>
1: I didn't think it was formal, is what. I That's my to
0: problem say. with like the casual wear at the end of this movie, where it's it's like, give me the weird space outfits from Star Trek Three right? Where's yeah. Sulu's like cape shawl thing? Where's that weird like jumpsuit that like, you know what I mean? Like I, like that Kirk wears when he's drinking with Bones. It's just like bring me back my weird space wear. I don't want everyone to dress like casual male Shep with a leather jacket. It's cool. I get it. I can see yeah. that on the street right now.
3: <laughs> I do want to say remember there is some original film series wardrobe featured in this movie because we get the picture. That's true.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. We didn't mention that. Yeah.
3: And if and if you needed to know, and so I wanted to rewind a minute, too, and say if you really needed a good point of comparison for how good the costumes were, how good the Starfleet uniforms are in this movie, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the red those are
0: so yeah. I
1: don't dislike the red turtlenecks, but I do like the colorful um TOS yeah. era like the Kelvin Verse version of the TOS era uniforms.
2: To your point though, Matt, where's the sparkle like space suits that have the, the line the different colored lines that go nowhere? Yeah, like exactly. where's where's that TOS? <laughs> where where are those outfits?
0: obviously like you're, this is like the end of um the tos stuff for sam watches star trek but like the original series like i know people say it's like you know it looks cheap and blah blah blah, blah but that's just like with your modern eye it was one of like the most expensive shows on television at the time that was half of why it was canceled because because nbc had both that and mission impossible and they chose to keep mission impossible as the two highest like you know, budget shows at the time. I just like the lighting on TOS at times is nuts. It's like you're watching some MGM Technicolor, like production, like the soft lighting and soft folk. It just, yeah, we can cut that out. Sorry, I got really excited about a 66-year-old <laughs> TV t- or 65-year-old
3: TV show. That's a good epitaph for me watching the original series and its characters. That's a that's a good, that's good. I should leave it in.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sam and Tessa, for having Elise and I, you know, have Sam watch the Star Trek go twice as long as it normally would (laughs) (laughs) and take it over. I was really wondering how
1: long this episode was going to be. And then also I was just like, who cares? Let's
0: just do it. (laughs) Elise, until next time, where can folks find more of you on the internet?
1: find me on twitter and letterbox at elise underscore tendi e-l-y-s-e underscore t-e-n-d-i and you met
0: yeah you can find me on twitter and letterbox at, as well at at m-a-t-t-y-h-u-g-h you can of course catch me on pod race talking about star trek deep space nine and i also have a madman podcast called still great bob we're currently slowly as as we have time to record it's difficult when you have one of our, our co-hosts is a healthcare worker these days. But yeah, we're slowly working through, through season four of Mad Men.
2: You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. After this wonderful supersized podcast, TakeOver, we are taking a two-month break from our Watches podcast because we are both traveling and I am trying to finish a dissertation. We will be back with Tessa Watches Lost on the fourth season of Lost, on June 23rd. Until next time, live long and prosper.
0: Computer and program.
2: Bye.